0: His medical journey began while on a repelling adventure in undergrad when he helped rescue an injured climber who had fallen 80 feet. Following this experience, he began his medical journey. Having grown up building things and thinking like an engineer, the philosophy and concepts of osteopathy were a natural fit. He was blessed with incredible mentors such as Ed Stiles who taught him the importance of knowing the systems of the body well so as to better understand their influence on the musculoskeletal system. Dr. Stiles taught him sequencing, the application of osteopathic principles to any part of the body, rather than learning a series of techniques. He has learned how to observe, ask proper questions, and listen to the whole patient. He says the more you know about how the body works as a unit of movement, the more efficacious your treatments will be. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Charles Beck, DO. Before we dive into the episode, let's hear what one fourth year medical student thinks about osteopathy.
1: Hi, I'm Neil Khanna. I'm a fourth year medical student from NYCOM. I'm applying ONMM this upcoming match. Surprisingly, I have to credit COVID and even Dr. Fauci for helping me learn what it means to be an osteopath. COVID began during my first year of medical school. I was astonished at the volume of information being spread. All different and conflicting opinions claiming to be backed by science. Masks, social distancing, vaccines, everyone had something to say and a journal article citation to back them up. Second year of med school starts and things are only getting worse. The vaccine is rolling out and my extended family is literally falling apart. My one eight-year-old cousin called my six-year-old cousin a stupid anti-vaxxer. And oftentimes, everyone looks at me, the doctor in the family for guidance. Do kids need a vaccine or not? To this day, I still don't have an answer. Third year starts and I see that my first clinical rotation will be OMM at the Nikon campus on Long Island. Keep in mind, during lockdown we had virtual OMM classes. Osteopathy and OMM barely crossed my mind. To think of it, A.T. Still is probably turning over in his grave hearing the phrase virtual OMM classes. So, my rotation starts and we get assigned some reading. A.T. Still from the Dry Bone to the Living Man by John Robert Lewis in the book, doctors Still remarked that AMD follows a symptomatic-based algorithm of whatever the most recent textbook recommends. Despite this quote being over 100 years old, I felt personally attacked. I had been smugly judging the Civil War doctors described in this book, who were frequently amputating and prescribing these crazy concoctions for their patients. But the truth was, I was looking at medicine in a similar manner. I spent hours a day doing UWorld and memorizing up-to-date flow charts that I blindly trusted to be the best treatment. Two weeks into the rotation, I felt my first muscle release. And it was a revelation of sorts. I felt the tissue soften, I sensed the warmth from the patient's body travel up my fingertips. I'm naturally a skeptic, but this was real. That's the moment I truly became an osteopath. Every time I've put my hands on a patient since, I've done so with thinking fingers. I chose to only apply ONMM because while the CDC recommendations seem to change every week, AT stills teachings are timeless. I'm a biomedical engineer. It makes sense to me that the body is like a machine that form and function are related, and if the body's overall structure is suboptimal, its functioning and capacity for self-healing will be inhibited as well. I don't know how to properly tell people the full extent of what OMM can do. When a patient comes to the clinic and asks, what exactly is it that we do? I'm tempted to say, buckle up, buddy, and spend the rest of the visit explaining osteopathy.
0: So welcome to the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Today's guest is a graduate of Pikeville College School of Osteopathic Medicine in 2004. He completed a osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine residency at Westview Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana in July of 2007. He is a fellow of both the American Academy of Osteopathy and the American Academy of Ozone Therapy. He also holds a certificate of proficiency in osteopathy in the cranial field. He is a member of the American Osteopathic Association of Prolo Therapy Regenerative Medicine, the Wilderness Medicine Society, and the Ukrainian Osteopathic Association. He has been awarded the Edward G. Styles Award for Osteopathic Manipulation, and was the winner of the A. Hollis-Wolf case presentation in 2001. He has 13 presentations and publications to name a few, Gate and the Cranium, and another titled The Fordum Percussor, Its Use, Maintenance, and Repair. He has lectured and table trained in Australia, Canada, Japan, England, New Zealand, Ukraine, and throughout many parts of the United States on a wide range of osteopathic topics from oral facial development, merging dentistry and osteopathy to A.T. Still's approach to foot and ankle injuries. He currently owns his own practice, Osteopathic Vision, since July of 2007. We are grateful for your time and happy to have you on the podcast this evening, Dr. Charles Beck.
2: Thank you so very much. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being generous with your time and being willing to share your story about how you became interested in medicine and interested in a career in in OMT. Sure, that's great. So before we dive in, Dr. Beck, can we get to know you a little bit as a person? Uh, I'd like to ask you some of your hobbies outside of your busy medical practice.
2: <laughs> it's, it's a great question, and I'm going to say with an ever-changing answer. Um, Two years ago, my wife and I decided we wanted to leave the city. And so we moved to the country and bought a farm. And so my hobbies over the last two years have included learning how to raise chickens, alpacas, donkeys, um, mowing 15 acres of grass, which is just a ton of grass, and uh, building a cattle barn on the property into our current practice.
0: Wow. So can I ask what city you moved from and why the decision to
2: buy a farm? We were um, in the city of Indianapolis and had a really nice house that I bought when I was a resident. And the house was great. Um, Practice was perfect location, but we were paying someone else what amounted to be a larger and larger amount of money every year. And I thought, wow, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could live and work on the same property and pay ourselves and actually own the building that we worked in? So that was the reason for moving.
0: Okay. So you're still, you're outside of Indianapolis, but still in Indiana there.
2: Yeah, we, we moved about 20, 25 miles away from Indianapolis. Okay. Okay.
0: Nice. Uh, what
2: about a uh, a
0: book recommendation for the audience?
2: You mean for people who want to learn more about osteopathy and get into OMM?
0: Anything that you would like. It could be that, or it could just be a pleasure read, whatever you would like.
2: If I had to pick one book, um, it's probably Leon Tao's book called, it was originally called palpation skills. I think the new title is, um, Palpation and Physical Assessment. And basically it's a book, uh, one of the first, I don't know, let's see within the first 10 pages. It says, go to your favorite fast food restaurant. Put your hands on the table. Without looking underneath the table, find the screws. And I remember as I read that, I thought, you know, somebody's able to do that. I wonder if I can do it. (laughs) And on the first attempt, I was within about a half an inch, which I didn't think was too bad for I mean what it felt like at the time guessing but I was close on every screw. And the book is just a fascinating way to continue to deepen your palpation experience.
0: So wait, so you were palpating on the the surface of the table and trying to feel the screws
2: underneath, underneath
0: the table. Correct.
2: Oh yes. Oh okay. interesting.
0: And these were just like these were exercises to build up and hone your palpation skills.
2: Yes. And and I would say to build confidence in what you feel, because when we feel the human body, honest to God, it's a guess. I mean, we still don't have the technology to prove what it is that we're feeling. But when you look at a, a table that's, you know, wood or some kind of composite material with a laminate on the top and you go, oh, I think the screw's right there and you look underneath and you're within, let's say, a thumb width of it, that's pretty definitive. You felt something. Yeah. So it it definitely built confidence. And and for that reason, uh, I recommend that book to everyone.
0: Interesting. I'm practicing this skill right now on my desk. (laughs) That's neat. Well, I appreciate that. What about a movie or documentary recommendation?
2: Oh, goodness. Um, and if you don't have any, that's fine. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, the name of the series. Um, there was a series that came out in the, I'm going to say 90s. And it was about cold cases where people died the law enforcement agents at the time didn't know how to figure out the murder and they come back later and using new technology they figure it out and i like it because it always makes me think i try to figure it out before they get to the end of the half an hour or whatever it is and and see how good my medical knowledge plays in with what's going on on the tv So those fun things that keep your brain working. Sure. Do do you remember the name of the series? I don't. That's okay. Cold Case Files, maybe, maybe, maybe that's one of them. My wife and I sat down and watched the entire series, which was, I don't know, something like 200 episodes. Oh, wow.
0: Wow. So it must be good. Okay. Yeah.
2: It was, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's great.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Beck, let's, uh, let's dive in to, uh, learn a little bit about your stir, your story and your journey to a career in OMM. So how did you originally become interested in medicine?
2: Well, um, that takes us back to the late eighties, which I think is about the time that the dinosaurs left the planet. And, um, <laughs> I went to college at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, was in engineering school at the time, working at the Student Activity Center. And at the Student Activity Center, we did concerts on Friday and Saturday and showed movies on Sunday and Monday. And a group of us decided that we wanted to go rappelling. Um, It was in the time before the Internet when paper books were still around. And we picked a place called the Red River Gorge in central Kentucky. And a group of 13 of us pulled up to the place where we had decided to go repelling. And this very hysterical woman comes up and we roll down the window and and she says, are you guys the rescue crew? And my buddy and I looked at each other and we said, well, I guess we are now. And so our crew that day pulled out uh, a guy who had fallen 80 feet while attached to a rope. We worked with the uh, forest ranger there who coincidentally, uh, just because he worked in that area, was the foremost expert on mountain search and rescue in the world. And uh, we pulled the guy out. None of us knew anything about medicine. Um, He wound up surviving. And at that moment in my life, I said, never again will I know nothing about medicine. So I came home and switched my major in college from uh, engineering to biology pre-med. And Got into EMT school, then went on to paramedic school, then went on to medical school. So that's how I got into medicine.
0: Is there anybody in your family who is in the medical field?
2: (laughs) No. I'm the only one in medicine, and as far as I know, the highest educated in my family lineage.
0: Really? So it was was truly that experience that uh, was the inspiration to go to medical school? Oh, yes. Wow. Okay and how did you choose osteopathic medical school?
2: Well, um, I first applied in, goodness, 91 or 92. Of course, by that time, I had majored in life. My GPA wasn't the most fabulous. And so I didn't get into the MD schools that I applied to. Mm -hmm. And went in the job market for a while and decided I wanted to definitely try medicine again. And if I didn't get in, then that was it, it was gonna be done. And if I did get in, that was great. And so I had met a guy who was a retired cardiothoracic surgeon who actually um, worked at Michigan State. And at Michigan State, he was an MD, but he had been exposed to osteopathy. And he said, um, he said, well, let me tell you with everything that I've seen from when the last time you applied to now, The MDs aren't going to take you. You don't fit their pattern of what they're looking for. Have you considered becoming an osteopath? And I said, well, what's that? I had no idea. And he told me his version. And I said, well, goodness, that sounds great. I thought I was going to have to go to MD school and chiropractic school. You mean I can do it all in four years? That sounds wonderful. Where do I sign up? (laughs) And he said, well, there's a new school that is opening up in Pikeville or just had opened up in Pikeville. And you should apply there. So I applied to Pikeville. And um, when I had my interview, the first question that they asked me is they said, tell us about your Outward Bound sailing trip. And what went through my head was, if that's the first question, I'm already in. So all (laughs) I have to do is relax and just hang out. And we had a chat for, you know, however long it was, 20 or 30 minutes. And I got into medical school.
0: So they really wanted to get to know you kind of outside of medicine.
2: It really seemed that way.
0: Yeah. Started out with your outward bound adventure with sailing trip. You said
2: sailing trip. Yes.
0: Wow. i mean, 21 days in a little sailboat. Can you give us a little summary of what that was?
2: Um, We started off on big pine key in Florida uh, sailed down across Florida Bay, uh, learning about how this little thirty-foot boat worked. There were eleven of us on the boat, and so it was a kind of an out and back twenty-one-day um, adventure. Sounds like a blast! Oh, it was so much fun.
0: Yeah, that's great. So you get into Pikeville Osteopathic Medical School. Had you had you known any osteopathic physicians? Um, had you had OMT done to you or was this a completely new experience?
2: The only osteopathic physician I knew was the guy who I went to. I had headaches before medical school and I went to him because I needed a letter of recommendation. So I made an appointment, went in, you know, he told me what he knew. I'm like, Hey, I need a letter. He said, okay, I'll write you a letter. That's it. I knew nothing else about osteopathy. Really? So what was it
0: like when you got into that first class and experienced or they started teaching you about OMT and then you went to the lab? Tell us about that experience.
2: Uh, Second week of medical school. So this would have been maybe second OMM lab. I had this moment where it felt like my life flashed in front of my eyes And I knew why I had done everything I'd done up to that point. And it all came down to doing OMM. I knew what I wanted to do. And I kind of said, you know what, if you made, if you just allowed me to do this one thing, I could skip the rest of medical school. Like I knew it that much in my soul at that moment.
0: Hmm. What was it about OMT that it had such, I guess, that profound resonance with you?
2: I think it's because, um, well, I mean, it feels like there's like, you know, days of story that goes into this answer that I'm about to give, but I grew up with a father who was very encouraging about building things. And so I was good with my hands and good with engineering thought processes and when it came to OMM, it felt like, oh my goodness, all this stuff that I've learned so far in my life fits with the body doing this thing. And of course, there was a lot to learn, but the concepts just resonated with me from the very beginning. Hmm.
0: So you pretty much knew two weeks into medical school, this was going to be your career. That's where you're going to go to residency for. Yep. So how did that make your other systems classes? I mean,
2: were they boring? Were they boring, or were you just no, like, Man, no, 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 no? Because the way, so I learned from Ed Styles, and Styles was really a stickler that you have to know your bet medicine better than the MDS, but you also have to understand how osteopathy and specifically OMM fits in with the medicine that you're learning. And so everything had a reason. Now, it doesn't mean I was really good at everything. But, you know, I mean, going through medical school, like they say, is trying to take a drink from a fire hose. Um, You do the best you can. Obviously, I passed. I'm on the other side of it. Um, But everything for me fits into OMM.
0: I see. So you were kind of going through your systems classes with that, Frame that. How is this relating to OMM? Yes. Or MT. Interesting. That's that's a very wise, some wise advice Dr. Stiles gave you.
2: Absolutely. And you know, uh, second year at least for us, the way it worked is over that summer between second and third year, we had our um, subspecialty um, classes where you had. Ophthalmology and dentistry and you know, it was like two weeks of each and I remember we had a guy from Georgia that came in And he was an ophthalmologist and he said, you know I knew I wanted to do ophthalmology during my second year of medical school And so what I did in my third and fourth years is I read everything I could on ophthalmology And I took every course that I could And he said i'm going to suggest you do the same because as a student you get a discount on the course fee. So granted, you're going to put it on your credit card. But when you're out, you pay to take the course full fee. You then pay to keep your office open. And it winds up costing you almost twice the course fee in order to be able to go to a course. And if you do it as a student, it's cheap. And so I'm like, well, I can do that. And literally... I went to courses until they pulled me into the dean's office and said, if you miss school again, you're out. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I now know my limit.
0: <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. I, I, I kind of want to ask you, how many courses did you go to for them to tell you I that? I think
2: it was four over the course of a year. Okay.
0: And these are weekend courses or these are like Yeah, I mean, this
2: was a, you know, Miss Friday, probably get back by Monday morning. But I, I mean, they they knew about it and I'm not sure because it was a relatively new school. I'm not sure how that sat with the administration.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. They were still figuring some things out as a new school.
2: <clears throat> oh, yes.
0: But yeah, if no one's pushing the boundaries, then they can't figure it out, you know, so. Correct. You helped you help them, Dr. Beck, set some boundaries. Of course. <laughs> so what was third and fourth year in the clinic like? Were you able to use some of the OMT that you had learned?
2: So the way we did it at Pikeville, so I was an undergraduate fellow. So um, we did one year extra. That would have been my third year. And it was... I want to say one day a week in family, one day a week in OMM clinic, and then two days a week in uh, OMM lab. So yes, got to apply things. Uh, There were three of us that were in the fellowship. We were the first fellows that Pikeville had. And it literally was just us and Dr. Stiles seeing patients, and we took the clinic from nothing into whatever it is today and saw patients, learned just a ton, um, as you do in that really intense time period of being in third, fourth, fifth year. Then when we got done with their third year, we went out, so my fourth year was everybody else's third year. So we basically skipped a class. Um, I entered in the t- class of 2003, graduated with the class of
0: 2004. Hmm, okay. How? Yeah, well, let
2: ahead. me let me finish because there's a there's a good caveat here. So apparently, we get sent to a, a, a core site where uh, you're supposed to do almost all of your clinical rotations, except for when you go out and you work at other hospitals that you wanted to do your residency at. So I got sent to my core site, unbeknownst to me, my core site didn't know if they wanted the osteopathic students or not. And so they sent me to spread the good word of osteopathy in a place that was anti-osteopathic under the surface. And six months in, through no fault of my own, I get a call from the dean saying, you're no longer welcome at the hospital. Um, I don't care what you do. We don't want to see you until graduation. Make sure you meet all your requirements. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure how legal that was. Um, I'm pretty sure it's past the statute of limitations by now. But literally, I had um, 18 months where I set up every rotation. If somebody was good at something, I wanted to go spend time with them. And there was nobody standing in my way. I didn't even have to ask for permission. So it's kind of a blessing in disguise. I mean, you had to do a lot a of the blessing, I'm going to say a blessing and a curse. I mean, yeah. I don't know that I got the best well-rounded medical education, but I certainly learned from some very talented people.
0: And you were able to choose the electives that you were interested in. Correct. Yeah. So how I'm going to go back to your fellow year. How did you decide to do an, an extra year of medical school as an OMT fellow? Why did you make that decision?
2: (laughs) Looking back, I didn't know any better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They, so I'd heard about this thing called an undergraduate fellowship, right? Pikeville didn't have it. Again, we were the first class. And it was the opportunity to spend another year with Dr. Stiles. And it made sense to me to do that. So The school had allocated two slots, three of us applied. Stiles looked at the dean and said, I'm not going to choose, you choose. And the dean said, I'm not going to choose, we'll take all three. So that was fabulous. Three of us got to do that. And Dr. Stiles um, lived in Lexington, Kentucky, which is about two and a half hours away from Pikeville. And so he would give us Fridays off. We had to do something scholarly. But it wasn't in the clinic. And so I went down to East Tennessee State University and spent time there in the clinic. And then over the course of the year, read 50 osteopathic texts. My criteria was couldn't be written by Dr. Still. had to be written by somebody else and (laughs) had to be written before the advent of penicillin. Like I wanted to know how the old docs thought and worked. Interesting. So that was my third year.
0: How come you didn't want to read any original text from A.T. Still? Just too difficult to read?
2: Not too difficult. I wanted to know, um, kind of like the lengthening shadow, I wanted to know what Still had imparted to his students. Hmm.
0: Okay. Now, I want to get back into Dr. Stiles because his name has come up a number of times with people that I've interviewed, like Stephen Paulus. Yep. Dr. Stiles seems to have been very influential in a number of OMT physicians' careers. And so I want to ask you, what what was so special about Dr. Stiles? And is he still practicing?
2: Okay, so first of all, what you have to understand about Ed is, and I'm not not making this up, he's the Forrest Gump of osteopathy. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Anything that has happened in his 50-year career, that has been big in osteopathy ed is in the photograph it is crazy how i would say how many crossroads occurred and ed was simply there can you give us an example well yeah uh, now now i'm going to give you his story and i'll fill in some of the details so ed was a pharmaceutical sales rep uh, back in the 60s and Learned a little bit about pharmaceutical sales and then wound up getting into medical school, went to Kirksville. Um, Across the street from Kirksville at that time was George Laughlin, who was Still's great grandson. And Stiles would sneak out of class, walk across the street, go spend time with George. And so what Stiles would say is that George couldn't explain anything. All he would say is, you take the doodad where it wants to go and you fiddle and diddle <laughs> and okay. Ed didn't know anything. So he imitated George, learned a lot from George and then he took over Perrin Wilson's practice.
0: Wait, was George a physician?
2: Yeah. 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 He was okay. a surgeon and he did okay. OMM. Okay. And he was in Sutherland's first cranial class. Hmm. So and he has the still name, Um, he, everybody kind of pulled him aside and say, Hey, look, here's what your, your grandfather did. And so anyway, he was fabulous. Styles learned from him. Then he took over Perrin Wilson's practice. And my understanding is that Wilson treated the Rockefellers. So he had connections and he was in Boston. And when Ed took over his practice, Wilson sold him the practice for a dollar Then Wilson saw patients on a 20 minute schedule. So Ed had to figure out how to see patients on a 20 minute schedule. And then Ed went to the second AAO convocation. I think he said there were 35 people there and they thought that was a big convocation. (laughs) And over the course of a couple of years, he got known because he had started the first, um, hospital based OMM program in Waterville, Maine. And he um, was the guy who gave us the codes for what we do today. So the Medicare and Medicaid office called him up and said, Hey, we see you're doing this thing that's getting people out of the hospital, you know, uh, sooner, what can we do to help you? He said, Hey, let me come down and we can come up with some codes. So Ed literally is the reason that we're able to bill for OMM. And then Ed got um, asked by Fred Mitchell Sr. to be in his first muscle energy tutorial, which was a week long at Sally Sutton's house. And so Ed's big people, his big influencers, were George Laughlin Jr., uh, Perrin Wilson, and Fred Mitchell Sr., and whenever Ed would get struggle with patience, he would call Fred Sr. And he'd say, Hey, Fred, I want to come down, and spend a couple of days. I got some patience so I want to bounce off of you and, and see what you think. And as far as Ed knows, he was the only person to go back and actually pick Mitchell's brain to figure out what Mitchell was doing. And so there, there was an event that happened that was path changing for ed so fred senior had a patient on the table and he said okay ed i want you to treat the patient and we'll see what you do so ed does what he thinks mitchell's doing and mitchell asked the patient how do you feel well i don't feel any different and the ed looks at mitchell and said well fred fooey on you the stuff that you do doesn't work And Mitchell looked at Ed and he said, you didn't do anything wrong in your treatment. It was actually perfect. What you did was you did it out of order. So I want you to go back and I want you to treat the patient and don't change anything. But this is what I want you to do first. This is what I want you to do second. This is what I want you to do third. Ed did that. When he got done, Fred said, okay, patient, how do you feel? Oh, it feels like it does when you treat me, Dr. Mitchell. And so the defining moment for Ed was, is that it wasn't what Fred Sr. did that was so important. It was how he thought. And then that started to develop into sequencing. Ed started to take the things that all of his mentors had taught him and figure out a way to make that into a screening that you could do with the patient that would give you feedback that would allow you to know where to start and then how to kind of define why you were starting there. And then another gift that Ed had has still is that he's able to take what other people do. And because he worked with George who couldn't explain anything, and Fred Senior who gave us the language around which everything in osteopathy now revolves, he was able to look at what other people were doing and say, oh, I think this is what you're doing in Fred's language. And so he's kind of given us the dictionary. So for example, um, something that is, has a, a counterstrain tender point on the left, in the front, in muscle energy diagnosis would be something, because counterstrain is position of ease, and we name in muscle energy for what it can do. So it would be a vertebra at that level, which is flexed, rotated, and side bent to the left, hmm. which is pretty darn cool because then the languages become interchangeable and you learn one thing in osteopathy in a whole bunch of different ways to apply it rather than seeming like you're learning a whole bunch of different things. So it, Ed was part of the, the, California merger, how we got that taken care of, you know, he was, he was involved in that and he's just been an amazing, amazing teacher. He's now 85 years old. He just finished up Pikeville, closed its OMM residency program. He's teaching at Pikeville for another year. And then he doesn't know what he's going to do. Although he said he wants to teach until he's uh, 99. So he's still got a few more years left in him. (laughs) That's great. I'm going
0: to have to get him on the podcast here pretty soon and have him tell his stories.
2: Yeah, he's a really great guy.
0: So how how did he influence you and in your treatment or your philosophy of OMT?
2: Well, so I guess it goes back to sequencing um, and, and it goes back to Pikeville. All right. So in the state of Kentucky, you have two MD medical schools University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, University of Kentucky in Lexington. That basically is the Western part of the state, if you will. When they decided to put in Pikeville, um, it was the only place that the UK and U of O would really allow it was in the Eastern part of the state. So they picked um, Pikeville College at the time. And it became the Pikeville College School of Osteopathic Medicine. It was the first advanced degree that the college offered. And when Ed started the program, they said, well, what are you going to use? Are you going to use the Kimberly manual? Are you going to use this, that? And Ed said, guys, you don't seem to understand. I'm taking students that typically we train to be OMM specialists, let's say, in seven years, or people who know OMM. Two years of book learning, two years of on-the-job training, which is our clerkship years, then a year of internship and two or three years of residency. And theoretically, for everybody else, you do that in a community that has established DOs. And so you can take those DOs and you can help them train the students. I'm starting a school in a town with 5,600 people. Of the 5,600 people, there are 400 attorneys, 150 MDs, and one DO, and he's an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I can't do it the way that you do it. What I have to do is somehow give these students seven years of education in two years. So what he did was he reverse engineered his entire practice. Everything that he commonly saw He figured out what the principles were behind it, and then we learned the principles. So we learned, for example, the principles behind muscle energy. Okay, here's your first muscle. Apply the principles. Here's your second muscle. Apply the principles. Here's your third muscle. Apply the principles. And after a while, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I just have to apply the principles. New muscle? Yeah, get out of the way. I got this. And it taught us anatomy over and over again. So what he gave me was the ability to reason my way through any scenario. Even if I'd never seen it before, I could still reason my way through it and come up with, you know, maybe not a complete differential diagnosis, but something to work from. And, that built and built and built. And as I took more classes and got other perspectives on how people thought things worked, I would test them against sequencing to see if they held up. And time and time again, I have come back to my own personal belief that sequencing is the top way to assess what's going on with the patient. It's a principle-based approach, which means if you learn something new, you just apply the principles. And sequencing fits, no matter what layer you're in, no matter what tissue you're in, no matter whether you're using Newtonian physics or quantum physics.
0: The principles. You're talking about like principles of muscle energy, principles of <laughs> I'm
2: I'm going to just... say yes, but... If you're going to Michigan State, the way that you learn principles is very different than the way that I learn principles. You learn a technique. I never learned a technique. I learned the principles of the technique, which is very, very different.
0: Can, can you give me an example?
2: Yep. So if you were treating a restricted acromioclavicular joint, mm-hmm. let's just say it's left side, right? We'll make it easy. Um, how would you go about doing it? What's your thought process?
0: Test the range of motion, compare left to right, um, test the degrees of freedom. So internal rotation, external rotation, ABA a, deduction, and probably where I found a restriction in the range of motion relative to the other side, Do muscle energy technique into the barrier.
2: Okay. So I concur all the way up until your thought process shut down. So yes, range (laughs) of motion is important. You're comparing left and right. You're getting a diagnosis that is in your mind defendable, right? That's what's still said.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: When it comes to treatment, technique means that you are aping the person who's teaching you. You're simply doing what they're showing you to do. And typically it's, we move it in this many degrees and then we move it in this many degrees and we put in this amount of force. Using the principles behind the treatment, you're palpating the joint. You're going into abduction until the joint loose packs. You're going into adduction until the joint loose packs. And so now I have a very tiny window where the joint is free to move. I'm going to raise or lower the arm until the joint loose packs. I'm going to, so, and basically I'm stepping through each of the steps, following the principles of muscle energy, which is really to find the place where the joint will move and the effort that will move the joint in the direction that you want it to move. Those are principles. They don't lock Mm -hmm. you into degrees. They don't lock you into amounts of force. And for example, if a patient had a partial or even a complete amputation, you can still do muscle energy on the amputated joint if there's anything to move. Hmm. That's principles versus technique. Interesting. Interesting.
0: I guess what I think about with the muscle energy is not so much degrees of like range of motion. It's more, I guess, restriction restriction in the range of motion. And then with the muscle energy technique, what I'm thinking about is the force that I'm applying. Is it sufficient to actually increase the range of motion or is it too much to try to reset the, Golgi tendon, the, the muscle axon, so that the muscle can actually continue to elongate.
2: Right. Hmm.
0: That's interesting, though, I, I, your, the approach of Dr. Stiles. I, I like it. Principle-based.
2: Hmm. The interesting thing is, now, you know, I started off as a medical student. Green, just like everybody else, had no clue what I was doing. By the second year, so um, I am in Indianapolis where the home of the American Academy of Osteopathy is. And in my second year, right before between second and third year, uh, or maybe it was third year, I got asked to be a surrogate for the OMM residency exam. And so, you know, I was supposed to go in and and they were going to work on me rather than working on the person who was taking the exam. Now, this was just the practical, nothing to do with the written exam. Um, And as I'm going through and I'm beginning of a third year student, I'm like, you know what? I could pass this exam right now. Haven't even gone through my residency, but I was trained well enough in school to understand how to reason my way through everything.
0: Yeah, that's neat. Thanks to Dr. Stiles and his, his teaching.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. So you decided to do a OMM residency specialty training in OMM. Yes. Any experiences, stories, lessons learned from those years?
2: Well, now we're, now we're going to get a theme here. So Remember what I told you about medical school, how I, you know, was at a core site for a bit and then got booted. (laughs) Well, they started my residency at Westview Hospital in Indianapolis. And I was the first resident in neuromuscular skeletal medicine in the history of the state of Indiana. Um, About eight months into my program, my program director apparently got into a ruckus with the CEO and the CEO fired him. And basically it's me and my residency director. That's the department. And so all of a sudden I have no residency director. And so I call the AOA and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And they said, well, you show up every day until we tell you to stop. Like, okay. So again, not sure that it was legal, but I was the resident the chief resident and the program director
0: (laughs) (laughs) for 16 months were you teaching yourself didactics too
2: (laughs) (laughs) of course (laughs) of course and uh you know i had a a doctor that whose office i was practicing in so it wasn't like they they completely left me on my own but i think in the 16 months i consulted that doctor on three patients I mean, other than that, it was me. And it was basically thanks to Ed's training that I was able to reason my way through these patients. And, you know, knock on wood, I I did okay. I learned a lot. Wouldn't really wish it on other people because it was a very stressful way to learn, but it worked.
0: So you did a general internship where you're going through the different specialties and then your second and third year both those years you were on your own
2: no no i did general internship and then for 8 months of my residency i had a program director and then the last 16 months cuz it's 24 months um nobody just me oh, boy <laughs> and, and my secretary <laughs> <laughs> wow
0: yeah so and you were working in the hospital setting not oh, in the yes. outpatient setting. You're in the inpatient setting, and are they they're consulting you on patients?
2: Oh yes, yes, yes. So I mean, how so- how
0: how did you educate them about what neuromusculoskeletal medicine was or OMT? If you were the first
2: OMT resident
0: in the state,
2: so the hospital that I was at was one of the last osteopathic hospitals in the state, and I did my ER rotation there. And somebody came up to me fourth day of my ER rotation. And they said, you know, in the three days you've been here in the ER, you've done more OMM in the ER than has been done in the hospital in the past three years. <laughs> okay. I mean, all right, whatever. Was that a compliment? Or it was, that... yeah, it was a compliment. I mean, they were all very open to it. They just didn't do it in their practice. So we had a a pneumonia protocol. Anybody that got diagnosed with pneumonia was um, in was going to get OMM. And then uh, we had a surgeon, really great guy, and he said, "You know, I really don't like doing surgery. I want to find ways to keep these people out of the surgical suite." I'm like, "Okay, great." And so we hit it off. He would give me consults. And so I would go in, in the mornings and I had a, you know, whoever consulted plus the pneumonia patients, I'd see those in the mornings. I'd go to clinic, I'd come back, I'd see patients in the evening and I'd go home and it was just me. Wow. But I mean, I will say it was a small hospital, 30 beds.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Wow. That's, that's incredible.
0: Um, I guess you could have probably just cruised by, but uh, you chose the straight and narrow path and were responsible and uh, learned as best you could. Wow. Yep. And I, I'm guessing you were going to convocation or other um, weekend conferences and and learning outside of your of, – your lonely residency
2: yes yes absolutely um i had a great friend have a great friend in new zealand and i would go visit him about once a year and we would put our heads together there was convocation there were any courses that i could come up with and then what i did because again i was alone in my residency last patient of the day for me was a shift into neutral it's the last patient. If the last patient took three hours, it didn't matter. Nobody else was waiting. And so what I would do is, it was they were kind of the testing ground. I'm like, hey, I got this thing that I've, I think I know how to do, and I'm going to test it out, and we're going to see if it works. I want you to give me feedback. And my patients were, I mean, like they are for everyone, they're the people who teach you. And so I learned a ton just by basically every day last patient going, okay, we're going to try something that I've never done before and we're going to see if it works. And if it does, we'll keep it. And if it doesn't, we'll drop it and pick something else.
0: Yeah. Interesting.
2: Did you ever use percussion hammers on the patients in the hospital? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So percussion hammer is vibrational energy and My undergraduate experience with working at the Student Activity Center, uh, being a roadie, a stagehand, tuning guitars, playing guitar, all these things that involved sound, the percussion, percussion instrument is just something that generates a frequency that is within the audio spectrum. And so it's a wave that can impact the body. So it like made perfect sense to me and yep, started using them, took classes from the people that uh, studied with Dr. Fulford, Uh, Fulford passed away two years before I got into medical school. So I never met him, but took as many courses as I could. Uh, We got a percussion hammer that was gifted to Pikeville when I was a, a fellow there, started using that. Then in my mind, I'm looking at this instrument and I'm going, man, it could be done better. I could do a Tim Taylor version of this. So I contacted the folks at Fordham, got in touch with the chief engineer, got the schematic for the circuit board and took the circuit board apart, figured out how to make it better and put it back together. And what came out of it was the percussor that I still create for folks to this day, instead of using a three quarter turn speed knob, which is the way it comes from Fordham, Mm-hmm. I put in a 10 turn speed knob. You go from the same zero to 4,000 cycles, but you do it over 10 turns rather than three quarters of a turn. So it's much more precise and it makes it a completely different instrument. Interesting. Doesn't it, I thought it went up to 10,000 revolutions
0: per minute. Nope. Is it only, is it four? It's four, huh?
2: Yep. Zero okay. to four. 4,400, depending on the model that you have. Okay. They've changed models over the, let's say, 20 years since I've started.
1: Yeah. But it's,
2: it's roughly 4,000. Now, they did make a model where, I think it's called the 930. It's an old one. The motor spun up to 15,000 RPM, but mm-hmm. it went through a worm gear that brought it back down into that. Roughly four thousand range, and those are the ones where the the shaft comes off at a ninety degree angle to the motor.
0: Okay, and they haven't been made yeah. in
2: twenty five years. Okay, interesting.
0: Really interesting. So you graduate from residency, the sole graduate. Yeah, and... close the program with me. Oh yeah, is that right? The program. Oh yes.
2: Yes. So I had the dubious distinction of being the first and only OMM resident in the history of the state of Indiana.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's an honor. (laughs) Um, So then you went right into private practice. Is that correct? Monday morning. Monday morning. And how did you make that?
2: Started private practice on Monday. Oh boy. How did you make that decision? Um, I guess in, in in so many ways it was made for me. So typically the way it works is if you're in a residency program, the people, the hospitals of the area will ask you to come and work with them or with someone in who is a graduate of their program. And there was nobody in Indianapolis for me to go work with from a hospital standpoint. So I had met a few practitioners that worked in town, found someone who was kind of willing to take me under their wing. And I started off working two days a week and seeing patients and my schedule got full pretty quick for that two days. And you know, I was making enough money to pay the bills and recovering from residency and medical school. So I did that for about a year and then increased to three days and four days and stopped working with that person and went out completely on my own. And I've been on my own since then.
0: And what, uh, what are the big takeaways, big lessons that you've learned? Not, maybe not so much from a business standpoint. How have you evolved as a physician throughout your career in private practice? Wow. That's, I know um, that's, a, that's a big question.
2: Yeah, I would say if I were to condense it, the more that you know about how everything begins to work together. So I can't say I'm an expert at any of this, but I've studied Chinese medicine, homeopathy, acupuncture, reflexology, uh, Reiki, and then the spin off things that have come from osteopathy, um, polarity therapy, for example. Um, oh, I'm blanking on some other things, but basically anything I can get my hands on where people work on the body, I don't want to know what their thought process is. And one of the things that Styles would say is that everybody's right and everybody's wrong. So, for example, some schools teach that if you want to treat a rib, by definition, you must treat the vertebra first. Other schools say, if you want to treat a rib, treat the rib, then treat the vertebra. Well, both can't simultaneously be right. So the patient will tell you what the right answer is if you ask their body questions in a way that you can get an answer from. And so as I started putting all of these things together, I realized that, you know, what we get taught in medical school is to, ask 20 or 30 minutes worth of questions in your first visit. And those things were important when I first started out in medicine. I wanted to know all those things. I put together things that other physicians had missed because I simply asked maybe more detailed questions, maybe better questions or just different questions. But I put together pretty decent history. And over time, I started to realize, wow, you know, it's not making a change in how I treat the patient. I may know more about them, but that doesn't change what I do with my hands. And so now I've found that for better or for worse, I ask fewer questions and I'm more in the moment with the patient. I'm reading what's going on with their emotions. I'm asking questions about their personal life in a way that seems to dig deeper than the way they taught us in medical school. And I don't know if it's a a better or just different thing, but that's what I've noticed that's changed in my practice. Hmm. So when you, you talked
0: about asking the body questions, can you explain that a
2: little bit more? Sure. Um, Let's see. I try to think about how to put this into words with having no video. How much do you know about uh, muscle testing as described by the chiropractors?
0: Mm, Not
2: much. Okay. Chiropractor by the name of George Goodhart figured out that if you take a, we'll call it a body part because you can use fingers, you can use arms, you can use legs. If you have the patient, stabilize the body part. So let's just say we're going to take your left arm. We're going to take it thumb down. We're going to put it straight out to the side of your body. And I'm going to say, what I'd like for you to do is hold this arm, make it so that I can't push it down. And we do a test. Theoretically, that test of the nervous system is testing to see how your inherent strength is. And then I'm going to ask you binary questions. So I can do this verbally. I can do it non-verbally. And the first thing I'll say is, state your name. And you give me your true name, Body Test Strong. You give me a false name, tell me your name is Fred Flintstone, Body Test Weak. Okay, so now what I've done is I've established a binary code, like a computer code, a one or a zero. And now have ways that the body can tell me I am getting valid, we'll call them truthful answers, I have ways that the body can tell me that I'm getting invalid answers. There are multiple ways to do this. So I'm just giving you one example. But then I can say, all right, so if uh, you come in and I suspect that you have an emotional thing going on in your life, I can say, hey, body, show me what a yes answer looks like. Show me what a no answer looks like. Then I can ask, are you today having an emotional issue? and I get a yes or a no response. And I can continue to ask questions and get more and more specific. Now, that's the way that the chiropractors do it. Um, Barral suggests, Jean-Pierre Barral, French osteopath, suggests you can do the same thing with cranial rhythm. Uh, you ask the cranial rhythm to show you a yes answer, show you a no answer, your hand moves in one way, your hand moves in the opposite way, whatever it is. Now you have your binary source code set up and you can start asking yes or no questions. And it is incredible the things that you can put together if you are clear and asking the patient the right things. Hmm.
0: What 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 is it about the binary questions, the yes or the no, that make is that what makes it powerful? Because it seems to me that. The body is anything but binary. It's so
2: fluid, I guess. Well, so what happens in the scenario that you and I are in at the moment, you hear me tell a story and you go back and you go, hey, I'd like a little more words around this or that. We're doing the same thing with the body. If the body could give me a download, much like we hook a car up to a computer, I wouldn't need the binary questions but the binary questions are a way that my feeble brain can ask the patient who is infinitely more knowledgeable about what's going on within and without their body than I am, how to get me information that I can understand and turn it back around to help them.
0: Hmm. My experience, I mean, that's, that's, it's interesting. I guess my, my follow-up to that is I find that so few people actually have body awareness.
2: Oh, yes. And so oh, yes.
0: I I would think it would be very difficult for them to ask those binary questions about their body that they're not very aware of in the first place.
2: So again, this the, this goes back to very first class I took Uh, I guess this would have been during my fourth year. Um, It was a a course taught by Ken Lossing. And there was a table trainer in it. And I I was there with one of my classmates. The two of us were the only students in a class full of docs who had been, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in practice. And I have my hands on my partner's head. And this guy walks up and I don't know, he's 10 feet away from me. And he says, you know, if you move the middle finger of your left hand about a half an inch to the right, you'll be on the place that the body needs to be able to release. And so my, my brain, like I didn't grow up with this stuff, right? So all this stuff is new to me. And I wanted to look at them and, and go, who the bleep are you? And what are you doing telling me what to do? Because, you know, I thought I knew. But on a whim, I moved my finger. And instantly the body changed. And so I remember very distinctly what went through my head is, okay, this guy knows how to do something that I don't. But clearly he puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. And so whatever he does, I can do. And I went up at the break and I asked him and he said, well, The best way I can describe it to you is that the body exists as a ball of energy. That energy goes beyond the skin. So it's like a force field. If I walk into your force field, every event in your life is available if I know how to to gather information. And all I have to do is just bring up enough information to be able to answer the question. I'm like, well, okay. And so I went back to school and worked with my my lab partner. And I looked at him and I just guessed as to what his dysfunctions were. And I'm like, oh, I'm like 53% correct. Well, that's better than chance. Okay, I'm on to something. Started figuring out how to fine tune what it was that I was doing as I developed more body awareness, and I guess bringing the things into consciousness that we visually see or experience. And over the course of, I don't know, a month or so, I got to where I was, you know, 75, 80% accurate. I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. I could look at somebody and diagnose them. And then I put my hands on to confirm. Then I got to the place where I was like 90 plus percent accurate. And then I started being able to do it from across the room. And then I got called into the dean's office again. And this was great. The dean said, okay, fourth year student talking to a third year student. Somebody saw you doing what they're doing. They accused you of being a warlock. And I thought, (laughs) oh, that's great in medical school. And the dean looked at me and he said, I don't care what you can do, but you can't do it here. (laughs) And I'm like, Okay, perfect, behind the scenes. And so I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Wait,
0: so exactly what is it, Dr. Beck? You can look at somebody, and just by looking them, looking at them, you can discern what some of their defun- dysfunctions are. You're not necessarily watching them walk. Correct. They could just be static in front of you. Correct. And you're... Now-
2: Yes. Now, I will tell you, um, I don't, it's been, well, the the Hollis-Wolf case presentation that I did, which was in 2001, right? So we're talking 21 years ago, Uh, CorelDRAW had a feature where you could take a photograph of someone and you basically convert it into like a terrain map and you could go through the elevation changes in the picture which was wicked cool and so I I did that I put my hands on someone knew what was going on in their body I took a picture and I'm like wait a minute you can see all of these things again if you were able to parse the photograph in a way that made it simpler for your eye to pick out the issues and so that's what I did. And and it was the the way that I was able to understand and put words to. I don't know if it's a gift or if everybody's able to do it. But for me, if if the two of us sit down and, and I walk you through what I'm doing and gave you a couple of minutes of instruction and you worked with it for a couple of weeks, you'd get pretty good at it too. It's not hard.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Does this have anything to do with the sequencing that Ed Stiles taught you, or this is completely different?
2: I'm going to say it's, it's different in that Ed didn't teach it. I don't know. Ed's kind of hush hush about a few things. So I don't know if he does it and just keeps it to himself, but it dovetails because sequencing is principle based. So I can look at you, figure out what's going on and then, know where to start without ever touching you. Now, it's very rare that I would do that to a patient because I want to confirm and be able to get the subtle nuances from touching someone. So I'm always putting my hands on people. So when
0: you're looking at somebody and trying to figure out what the dysfunctions are, are you looking at like shoulder height, rotation of the cervical spine, hip levels? You're looking at all that
2: every visual cue that hangs out below the consciousness i am trying to bring into my awareness
0: hmm. but you're looking at physical dysfunctions i mean you're you're looking at them let me try how am I, how can i say this you have an idea of what their body should look like from a physical standpoint a structural standpoint and you're picking out the what is not structurally sound I'm
2: not sure that <laughs> I'm those are the words understand. that i would use so the best thing that i have figured out like a way to explain it if you are a well-trained martial artist and it doesn't matter what particular aspect of martial arts you're trained in that training teaches you how to look at your opponents and pick out based upon their movements their weaknesses and then if you do a tournament with your opponent you're looking as a martial artist and to win the tournament to exploit those weaknesses you want to be able to win And after a while, I realized, wow, you know what? I have exactly the same information that the martial artist does. But what I want to do is take those weak spots and shore them up. So it's just a different side of the coin. But I'm watching people as they walk in. I'm watching how their feet move, legs move, you know, hips, arms, facial features, and we get taught a lot about body language and facial expression without ever having gone through class. And I don't know, like we pick up on the big things, but we don't pick up on the subtleties. And I have, I'm still teaching myself how to pick up on more of the subtleties. You know, Oh, the, when they walked in, there's this really brief flash of, Oh, that knee didn't move correctly is that significant or not? I'm gonna put my hands on it and try to figure it out. But that that significance is not something that I've ever taken a class on. I see. I guess what I was trying
0: to get out with my question, is this more of an energetic feel or is this more like you say, you're watching the patient walk into the room you're seeing the gestalt, maybe what's not moving and what's causing the restriction, then you're putting your hands on them to try to better discern what is the, I don't know if you like to use the word key lesion or the area of causing the most structural dysfunction.
2: Yeah, I would probably say that's a good way of defining it. I don't, there may be an energetic component, but I don't focus on that.
0: Yeah. I see. Okay. And then I, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I do have two more questions for you. Sure. One of the questions being what, and this is another big question. What are some things that you love about osteopathy or you love about uh, OMT?
2: Hmm. Well, I, Go back to the quote from Still that if you aren't getting the results that you think you should be getting, you don't know your anatomy well enough. So for me, that always keeps me on my toes. Um, You know, I would say that when I started off in practice and I didn't know a lot. Theoretically, God, the universe, whatever words we're going to use, sent me patients that my skill level matched. And I didn't get the complicated patients, or at least it doesn't feel like I did, looking back on it. Now I get the complicated patients, and it keeps me learning. I have to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into anatomy and what we get taught in school, what we get taught in our postgraduate courses, and then the things that are just blatantly missing. And you have to teach those yourself. So are, are you
0: referral based or can someone just walk into your clinic?
2: I might get one referral a year. Everything is word of mouth. Really? I have a website, that's it, no advertising. And I'm in the middle of cornfields.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Very interesting. Very fascinating. Um, let's see my next question to you. What would you say? What advice would you give to osteopathic medical students who are dragging their feet, learning OMT?
2: There's another still quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, if you aren't doing OMM, I'm going to come take my degree back from you. <laughs> and, and another quote, I want no mediocre osteopaths, right? This was still who was, you know, dot in the wool, an osteopath. He thought that putting hands on the body, was what it was all about, even if you did other things. So for people who aren't, I don't know if the right word is motivated. I mean, I think looking outside now at our teaching, we're we're worse than poor about getting students motivated for OMM. I mean, like as a profession, we've gone way downhill. And so I'm not surprised that people would be less than motivated to learn manipulation. What I have found, though, is that when you find doctors who know manipulation, that doesn't mean that they use it, but they know it. They're a better physician because of it. Because it teaches you how things go together in a mechanical way. And the things that are missing from medicine nowadays, and my take is it's because there's not a pill for it, is mechanics and physics. It's like the inconvenient truth. You know, you're in a car accident. Physics happens, but because we can't give you a pill for it, we're just going to pretend it doesn't. And then physics is what winds up showing up in your symptoms when you come in either after the accident or years later, because no one's looked at the mechanics and the physics of the body. For that reason, it's darn important. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And I did remember one other question that I wanted to ask you. How much do you think what we do is placebo effect? versus actually making structural changes in the body. And and that's a tough question. So
2: it's a great question if you're asking it from the aspect of pharmacology. It's the wrong question if you're asking it from the patient standpoint. The patient comes to you with a complaint and and what we do in the united states is not healthcare i can't remember when the last time we had healthcare was it's it's not even really disease management right what we're trying to do is keep you coming back and it's sad but if someone comes to you with a symptom and you can make the symptom go away does it matter if you put your hands on someone, if you wave feathers at them, or if you give them a pill? Doesn't matter Not if really, something no. goes away. Right. I mean, if if truly what we're trying to do is help the patient, then we've accomplished it. Whether it's placebo effect, whether it's something that's repeatable over and over again in a clinical practice, whether it's evidence-based medicine or whether it's pharmacology or surgery, if we're able to to help the patient feel better, how we got there isn't super important. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make for good teaching. I'll tell you that because in <laughs> teaching we want something that is repeatable over and over again, and there's evidence for sure. it, all this other kind of stuff. Sure. But what you recognize in osteopathy is that the people who typically get the great results are the gurus on the hill. They're not the people in the universities.
0: And how important is it that we're asking the patients, the treatments that I'm doing, how is that making your body feel? How important is that question?
2: Well, I would say that for me, I I put myself squarely in the service industry. Um again because I'm I'm cash based people come to see me because they expect results it's darn important for me mm-hmm. obviously if I'm not getting results theoretically I'm going to wind up treating crickets after a while because no one's <laughs> going to want to come see me
0: That's right That's right okay Okay that's fair Well Dr Beck thank you so much for your time if anybody would like to reach out to you or ask you questions, how can they do that?
2: Well, um, email address is drcharliebeck, B-E-C-K at gmail. Website is osteopathicvision.com. Um, if you want to order a percussion hammer, it's percussion-hammer.com. And if you want to take courses, and I've got about 25 that I'd Teach so far, it's osteopathiccourses.com. I also happen to be the president of the Indiana Academy of Osteopathy, and we teach courses uh, throughout the country, uh, usually two or three times a year. So, Indiana Academy of Osteopathy.com as well.
0: That's great. And you will also be doing a pre convo course this year, convocations at the Broadmoor and Colorado Springs from March 15th to the 19th. You are yep. doing a sequencing course, if so I'm not mistaken, pre-convo.
2: Two courses, yes. So we're doing a, basically an intro to sequencing uh, with sequencing one. Styles is going to be there as well as uh, five or six people who have learned under ed. We're all going to be teaching the course together. And uh, that'll be two and a half days. And when that course ends, we'll go to lunch come back after lunch, and then there is a course, intermediate course on how to diagnose and treat shock in the body uh, using sequencing, the sequencing approach. That's
0: great. So yeah, look those courses up. People can register for those online at the uh, academyofosteopathy.org for its convocation, I believe. I think so, that's correct. Yes. Great. Well, thanks again, Dr. Beck. It was a pleasure chatting with you this evening. Thank you for sharing your clinical pearls and your your wisdom. Um, thank you so much. And I'm excited to have you back sometime on the
2: podcast. That'd be great. I look forward to it. Thank you.
0: Okay. You have a great evening.
2: All right. Thanks. Bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Beck and learned some osteopathic pearls. We thank him for his time and greatly appreciate him sharing his journey. As always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please share the podcast with your family and friends. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we will bring Dr. Albert Kozar onto the podcast to share his story.